Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Join me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is my protege, Mr. Morris Bershtinsky. What's the name of that song? <laughs> Screwball Month continues with a look at Gregory LaCava's My Man Godfrey. Based on the novel and co-written by Eric Hatch, no, not that Eric Hatch, the film stars William Powell as the titular Godfrey. He's a forgotten man living in a Hooverville in New York City, where he's picked up by a bunch of swells out on a scavenger hunt. Bringing in a forgotten man will net a lot of points and help Irene Bullock, played by Carol Lombard, win the game. In return, she hires Godfrey as a butler to the wacky Bullock family. And of course... Hilarity ensues. We will be spoiling My Man Godfrey as we go along, so if you haven't either seen My Man Godfrey or the remake, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Morris, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think? I saw the film for the first time, I think, over the last couple of years, like during COVID. I was 
either reading an article or listening to a podcast, something they were talking about Casablanca. And there was reference made to Misha O and some of the films that he'd gone and done. So I thought, oh, yeah, look, I rather like his brief turn in that film. I'd like to see what else he's done. So I watched Hell's a Pop, in which we ended up doing as a an episode on C here, a lot of fun. And I also then watched My Man Godfrey, which had been recommended in this list. I really fell in love with this film. My initial reaction, yeah, as I said, was I liked it a whole lot. I thought it was a really great dialogue-driven film. And for a film that was set in a very difficult time for a large part of the US population, maybe the world population, really, I found it interesting how the dialogue was able to be so breezy and comical while still making the point about the tragedy that people in the upper stratosphere of wealth can remain ignorant at best or disdainful at worst about people who are not in their class or never mind their own suffering. Obviously, this is a Hollywood version of what the depression was about. This is not a Vittorio De Sica film. This is not the bicycle thieves. But having said that, given the setting for, you know, part of this film in the dump. I honestly would like to see this at a repertory cinema done as a double feature with Miracle in Milan, which is also you know, set in a city dump. But whilst my man Godfrey is, you wouldn't exactly call it a fantasy, but you know, as I said, it's a bit of a Hollywood version of people in dire straits. Uh, as opposed to Miracle in Milan, which is a pure fantasy while still making a statement about people doing it tough. Long way of saying, yeah, I did like this film a whole lot. And Kat, how about yourself? My Man Godfrey is one of my favourite screwballs because of the class angle, because a lot of these films obviously made in the Depression. So they were fairy tales, but a lot of them were satirical fairy tales. And this one, the stuff it has to say about class is just amazing. There's some really great gender swapping stuff because it basically is like a role reversal kind of of Cinderella. Because they did like a poverty fairy tale during this era. So whilst it's really Hollywood, it's also the stuff it says about the elite is Amazing. This really ties into my last Patreon video, sorry for the spam, where I accused a lot of the uh, Hollywood today of, of permanently living in a We Are the World video whilst being oblivious to everything else. Sean Penn is currently out in Ukraine trying to solve the world's problem. And I just love the way it lampoons that almost like Victorian social worker attitude to class. You know, look at the little people. Oh, I'm going to you know, and Godfrey becomes their puppet. So for the Scrooge, I love the Scrooge, but this is like top five for me. It's just, it, I've seen it a few times now and it's just funny, it's slick, and it's also sharp around the edges as well. I thought, always thought this was a Paramount one, but it's not, it's universal. But it has got that like Paramount with like the leaders in that very ostentatious sort of set design. And in fact, didn't Travis Banton do the costumes on this one? Because he was paramount. I'm a sucker for that real classic Hollywood look. But then I think we discussed this last time. The screwball always had so much more to say. It wasn't by the 40s. American comedy had got much more wholesome and safer 
Whereas the 30s, when the haze code is just coming, you can see they're really pushing to see how much they can get, how much they can get away with. I think it's a really exciting period, and Godfrey's got to be a leader in that. I can see the confusion around the studio. This was like Universal was just under new management. They had a hard time casting this. I think that Powell was the one that insisted on Lombard, and she was actually alone from Paramount. So it does have that Paramount feel to it, definitely. Yeah, it looks like a Paramount film as well. And I'd always assumed it was a Paramount film, but then obviously because we did the notes for the show, I was like, oh, hang on, it's Universal. Yeah, but it's definitely emulating that Paramount look. So a quick question, because I don't know how the studio system worked in terms of uh, uh, writers. I know that actors were on loan from studio to studio or they had a contract, but Maury Riskin, who was behind this, also I know quite famously went and wrote for the Marx Brothers, which might sort of explain the Paramount feel. I think everyone was on contract, weren't they? There was very few independents in this era, and people would just get loaned out or swap over, which I don't necessarily think was a bad thing. I know people were critical of that, but it was an actual industry. It was an industry full of craftspeople, and and I really appreciate that, even though obviously it was exploitative as well. And just this idea that it actually was an industry and people were trained up and skilled and would move through it like a, I guess, more like a job. (laughs) I just really love that aspect of it. Good call on Riskin, by the way. Uh, Morris worked a lot on the Marx Brothers and then also even helped adapt uh, the front page as his Girl Friday, which is seen as one of the classic screwballs as well, I think. And this one really hits the whole class angle so hard. We talked a lot about that last week with Ball of Fire. But this is what I would consider more the typical screwball, especially when it comes to really playing up the depression and really showing just how insane the rich are. There's a lot of insanity that runs through these films. I mean, we'll be talking about Arsenic and Old Lace in a few weeks where insanity gallops in the family, not runs in the family. And then even things like uh, You Can't Take It With You. I mean, that one, that, that's not a rich family that's crazy, but there's a lot of crazy people in it. Oh, they didn't hold back. They they did not hold back. And I love that because I think in recent years, that sort of era of comedy has been rediscovered by the quote-unquote cinephile, and they've had these sort of very bourgeois screenings. But these films, at the end of the day, were made for working class people who were fed up with these rich people, you know, while they're literally starving. And so a lot of these films, you have like the the archetype of the villainous banker appears in these films and the idiotic fact, like the family in this are all a bit stupid. They're a bit like our royal family, you know, really excessive and oblivious and a bit stupid. And I just really appreciate that because people would go into these films predominantly as escapism from like a terrible time. But uh, Hollywood, at least then, was kind of giving them what they wanted. You know, it's like, let's just lampoon the rich. Let's just show that they're lazy and excessive and rude and patronizing. And and this one, I think, takes it to the kind of furthest <laughs> point when it when it came, you know, just the whole setup, the mother with that little fuck toy, you know, it's obviously implied. Like, what is she doing with Carlo? Not to jump ahead, but I love that. 
the sort of uninterested husband just allows his wife to have this toy boy he's always eating. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it's just like, this is kind of obscene as well. It's wonderful. Darling, why don't you eat something? Look at Carlo. He's had two helpings of everything. Leave her alone. Carlo's eating enough for both of them. Now, Alexander. You ought to be strong enough pretty soon to give that concert. You can't rush genius. You could give a bang-up concert right now with a knife and fork. <laughs> why do you always pick on Carlo? Why not find someone else for a change? Sorry, I just wanted to ask something about the definition of screwball comedy. I'm sure that... You already sort of. Oh my God! No, we don't want to go there. Uh, Look, look, if I can just, if I can just sort of put a couple of my thoughts in, because like, for I'm ashamed to say that I've probably not seen as much screwball comedy as I should have, or you know, certainly how how many you may have seen, Cat and Mike. But growing up for years, I sort of thought, right, what's up, Doc? Uh, As part of uh, an homage to screwball comedy, that's what it was. It was about rapid fire dialogue delivery and uh, about physicality and so i mean and i've you know seen some of the other some of the other ones like you know to be or not to be uh his girl friday bringing up baby and 20th century which i just watched over the last week as well when i watched this a couple of years ago it didn't occur to me that this was screwball comedy and i've read all sorts of definitions like it's something that mocks the the wealth it's it's got to be a love story but with something that is going to be a, a love story that maybe puts a funny twist on love rather than rather than bows down to love there are still some films which i don't know whether would fit that definition i mean is singing in the rain a screwball comedy because it's very yeah. very physical it's really nebulous but it seems to just i think one thing that's agreed on that is it, it's from a specific time period sort of the 30s into the early 40s. But it's more of an energy, and there are films that, because they also have, like, the comedy of manners and they have their typical paramount Hollywood romance as well. But I think with The Screwball, it's got, like, an aggressive energy to it, I think. And there is, like, a lot of physical comedy in it. There is a stylized dialogue, but not always. I think it's more to do with an energy and there are a lot like it's just one of them genres like noir that's constantly debated like is this a screwball is that a screwball but um i think it's kind of ridiculous to get hung up on that (laughs) i just i just do because i when i started researching a book on screwball i fell into that whole world of people trying to claim a definition and it just made my brain hurt uh same with the noir same with the Italian giallo. It's just unfortunately one, because it's not that clear cut. But I think it's more specific to a time period than anything else because, uh, you know, certain screwball completely different. Like Ball of Fire is very different to my man Godfrey. You know, his girl Friday is different to both of them. So I think it's more to do with a kind of aggression or a subtle aggression. And there's definitely aggression in this, even when it's not that obvious there is something there that feels aggressive which is why i love these films so much so it's not from that era but from years later i would have thought something like some like it hot uh or maybe i don't know maybe not the odd couple yeah but wilder started in the screwballs so he just kind of carried that on his whole career you know that was his era and that's what he was best at as well 
when he was working in innuendo and suggestion and this kind of subtle aggression. He was so good at that. And he just carried on doing that because he didn't like what, by the time they got to the 60s, he hated what had happened to the American comedy because it did get very, I think he called them like powder puff comedy. It did get very sanitized and sweet. And I think we can talk about that when we get to the remake of My Man Godfrey, which has definitely been sanded down and smoothed out. And the nastier aspects have just been removed. And, you know, it's a whole other thing because it's of its, its era. But Wilder never lost Screwball. And I, I love him for that because I just think he was so good at that. Not to dwell on definition, but I think it's usually defined around like post code. So like 34 to I think around 42, like, you know, we were in the war. Yeah. It's like an energy of that, that time. There's a bite to a lot of these comedies. Yeah. yeah. That's bite. That's, that's perfect because it is an era where all of a sudden everything gets shut down and all the writers and, and directors are told you have to totally rethink comedy now because pre-code, you know, that's off the table. And so what you see in that period is them seeing how far they can push. It's like abrasive. They're getting stuff in that they perhaps shouldn't be. And and so, yeah, it definitely is. Bite is a perfect way to, to describe it because there are good 40s comedies as well that aren't screwball, but they don't have that same bite. And you can tell there's probably anger there as well from the industry because no one was on board with this. And they're all pretty pissed off about it. I mean, who wants to be censored to that extent and be told, no, you can't do this, you can't do that? So you can tell there's like a, a specific energy there where everyone's seeing how far they can push. And and then by, say, 43, 44, it's like everyone just gets really resigned. <laughs> they all just kind of, oh, okay. Well, and we're also supposed to be all rah-rah about the war by that time, too. So that kind of winds it down. Yeah, and it becomes more very sort of America fuck yeah thing. There's some moments in the film where I'm just like, okay, I think they're making a reference to something. You know, talking about the code. It's like, I think they're trying to tell us something, but I'm not exactly sure. Like you were talking about, you know, Carlo and him being that boy toy. But there's even a moment where... I think Carol Lombard's saying something like, oh, yeah, that same thing happened to my sister. And I'm like, what What are you talking about? <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a few of those moments where I'm just like, are you saying this because of that other thing? But, yeah, it, it's interesting. And, and the depression is just so loud in this. And I love how we start at the dumps and even – the opening credits of the film really speak to the end of the movie because you've got all of this neon and all of these signs. I love the way that these credits are put together. And then that will come back later on once uh, uh, Godfrey starts his club and it's got that same kind of neon and all those kind of things because this is going around, kind of panning around the docks with all of these uh, – great neon signs and then we end up by the dump where we have all of these forgotten men and you know we're talking about the rich and it's interesting that godfrey used to be rich and then there's another guy who's part of this hooverville that also used to be rich he was a banker and he ended up giving up his money to the people that 
banked with him because the banks were closing. So there's a couple of like, not all rich people are bad. Like Carol Lombard ends up being pretty good, but they all need to learn a lesson. All of these rich people, no matter who they are, need to learn a lesson before the end of this film. Yeah, and it's that whole thing of it's a simpler life, you know, and Godfrey finds his soul in the dump. The beauty of that opening shot is, in a way, as well as sort of being a, an effective mechanism to subvert your expectations, it also seems to me like it's taking the piss out of a lot of other uh, Hollywood films of the time. You know, I mean, I've, over the last couple of years, if I've gone and sat down with my mum and we've gone and watched bunch of, you know, whatever, Fred Astaire movies or Donald O'Connor movies. And a lot of those musicals have can do. Yeah, sure. We'll write a musical. We'll do a show. It's all glitz and glamour and Broadway and hilarity ensues as uh, the star-crossed lovers misunderstand each other, but it's all glamour. And so in a way, the opening of this film, if you knew nothing about it, if you were just sitting down saying this film has been recommended to you, you'd see something you think, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going to be watching a film in that regard. And then within 30 seconds of the camera pan from the big neon lights with all the credits of, you know, the director and the actors and uh, the composer, et cetera, et cetera, then as it pans and you see the city dump and it's nothing like what you expect. I mean, the music still tells you the opening theme and the music as it goes along does tell you that you're going to be getting a comedy but as you've gone and pointed out, Kat, this is a, a comedy with a very socialist heart, something that's definitely going to be eating the rich, as it were. And I, I think it, it does this effectively. I mean, I'm sure we'll sort of go into further examples uh, as, as we go along. At the same time that it's taking the piss out of a lot of these people, and certainly in that early scene at the scavenger hunt, it's really pulling them apart. But once we meet the Bullock family, like inside the sanctity of their own home, they're a family which are in a bubble. None of them, well, maybe apart from Cornelia, none of, none of them are particularly villainous. And you get the impression that Alexander Bullock, played by Eugene Pallette, he plays it as someone who's, I suspect, has seen, if not poverty, but certainly has seen hard times growing up. And he built this company from the ground up. So he knows what's going on on the outside, but his wife and daughters, they really don't. And I mean, there's another question is, how did he ever end up marrying Mrs. Bullock? It makes no sense to me at all. That's, I mean, it's, it's a good comic device. And Alice Brady playing as his wife, she annoys me to hell as a character, but she's probably the greatest comic invention in this film. She's just so annoying. She knows how to do that so well. And sort of coming back to the Maury Risk and Marx Brothers connection, if Groucho had been on the set of this film, she would never have gotten the word in Edgeways. I think, you know, Margaret, Margaret Dumont, if, if they would have said, look, we'll let you be in this film, no Groucho around, you can use all this dialogue. She would have been perfect for this. But she's basically, Alice Brady is Margaret Dumont without a rein in. What I love about it, though, is a lot of these films and the pre-code ones did the whole Cinderella thing, especially that shop girl trope they had in the early 30s, like Joan Crawford did a lot of those, you know, or even something like Babyface where old Stanny sort of sleeps away to the top. 
And they did this whole thing, but Godfrey totally reverses that. And you've got this household with three basically very sexually aggressive, uh, libidinal, completely untamed women who are so rich they can do what they want, they can buy toy boys and... You know, and and the whole thing is they can't buy Godfrey. Like, they can't buy his body. And I just love that. It's like, when does that ever happen? And they're all sort of gunning for him and, and you know, wanting to use him in other ways and don't actually see him as a person. And it totally fit, flips that whole sexuality thing on its head to have, like, like the idea of Carlo, I could come back to him again, but I just, I love him. You know, being fed like a pet. He's always eating like in the corner. And you think, what is he doing in private with this woman? Because he's like, what is he doing? And and when the husband finally throws him out the window at the end, like he's had enough of it, reclaiming his home, just tosses him out the window. Uh, And you get the idea, it kind of plays with this idea of the... The, the man is cuckolded somehow, you know, he might be tough in business and self-made, but these women just run rings around him. I really love, I know we discussed it on Ball of Fire, but the screwball would often take the kind of macho masculine man trope and they turn it on its head. So in Ball of Fire, you have Gary Cooper, Mr. Hyper-Masculine Man, as like this nerdy virgin, like 40-year-old <laughs> virgin, or Cary Grant, who's my favourite of favourites, who really made a name in portraying like a particularly ridiculous sense of masculinity, like jealous, petty, not particularly bright a lot of the time, you know. And and so even though he was like a beautiful man, the characters he's played were always really ridiculous. And this does it in a slightly different way because. Um, Apart from Godfrey, the, all the focus is on these women and how ridiculous they are. You know, they ride horses home back from the party. Like, who left that horse in the dining room? And they're all trying to fuck Godfrey, even the maid. And and they're all sort of hormonal. And I love it when Godfrey has that chat where he's like, has your mother never told you proper deportment? And it's like, look at the mother! <laughs> and now she deports. So there is a lot of fuck, fuck yeah energy in here towards, you know, rich women not being uh, forced to have this like social expectation. Uh, and you get like a sense that everybody is kind of like this at the party. You know, they're like finding people and using them in this scavenger hunt, like, <laughs> like poor people. And they've got absolutely no morals. But I, I really love that. Like you said, they're not malicious. They're just, um, they're on a completely different planet. But the fact that they're women just makes it even more edgy, I think. The Hays Code did punish women's sexuality more than anything else. Women weren't allowed to smoke. Uh, You know, if they had an affair with a guy, they'd be punished much more than the guy was. He'd learn his lesson and probably go back to his family at the end of the film. But the woman would be outcast, you know, or, or like old, Gloria Graham just had to die at the end of every film in some horrible way, you know, this long, drawn-out, painful death. And this somehow seems to get round that by just using comedy and just say, oh, this is just absurd. But no, when you start looking at it, you've got um, Cornelia, who's like an absolute sexual predator, who, who is so annoyed at 
She's all, she's Harvey Weinstein level of like sexual predator. I'm going to get you arrested and put in prison because you wouldn't sleep with me. She's nasty, even though at the end she she's humanized. You know, and this rich mother who just openly has this like toy boy in the house. That's the example. For that era, given uh, what they did with women's sexuality and, and how they made women were supposedly just supposed to be, you know, good girls who settled down or, or nurturing mothers. Like, this is like total anarchy. So like, how the hell did they get this through? Like, how the hell did they get away with this stuff? I like to think that Carlo's guerrilla act was something that Mrs. Bullock probably knew about in the boudoir. It wasn't just a trick that, that he did to amuse Carol Lombard character. Oh, totally. Do you know what it makes me think of? The the chimp in Sunset Boulevard. Oh, boy. <laughs> Carlo is a precursor to the chimp in, in Sunset Boulevard. Just going to say something in relation to the morality in the film. Maybe not so much just the morality, but the cocoon that the family live in, in the early part of the film, like after Irene, played by Carol Lombard, has taken Godfrey to the scavenger hunt and she's won as a result of bringing the forgotten man and she's won the prize as part of the scavenger hunt. So after he walks out and she comes running after him and says, look, I want to help you. He says, well, why would you want to do that? Well, you know, you help me, so I, I help you. That's that's how it works. And it seems more like a financial transaction. That's something that she understands. It's not there's a good heart somewhere underneath there, but she is a manipulative character, as we get to see. Oh, there's that whole thing about all the other butlers, like that they never explain, but yeah, so like, how long has this gone on? Any one of them could have driven the other butlers out, but um but what I just find interesting, I mean, like as I said, I think she's got at the crux of it all, a good heart, but she only understands helping someone out in terms of, well, you did good for me, so I need to do good for you. Whereas going, skipping towards late in the film where Mr. Bullock's business is going down the drain and basically the family is in a really, really bad way. Everything's gone down the toilet. And Godfrey, he's helped them out because he's learnt about humility, but also, if not necessarily quite altruism, but doing the right thing is just something that is in his heart, yet he explains it to them in terms that they'll understand. He says, I repaid my debt, and I am grateful to all of you. If anyone's indebted, we are, after the way some of us have treated you. I've been repaid in many ways. I learned patience from Mr. Bullock. I found Mrs. Bullock at all times, shall we say, amusing. Oh, that's very complimentary of you, Godfrey. And don't forget that you said I looked as young as Cornelia. What good did you find in me, if any? A great deal. You taught me the fallacy of false pride. You taught me humility. I don't understand you. Now, Miss Cornelia, there have been other spoiled children in the world. I happen to be one of them myself. You're a high-spirited girl. I can only hope that you use those high spirits in a more constructive way. And so, good day. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. He's not really doing it as a transaction like Irene explains at the beginning of the film. Late in the film, he does it because he just knows that to basically to be a mensch is just something that he needs to do. And he helps his the people who he was on the the dump with, like where Irene and Cornelia meet him at the beginning of the film. He builds up this nightclub with the money that he's invested to help them out not because he owes them something, but because he just inherently is a decent person. He understands that this is how the world should work, not the definition that the wealthy have. Well, I guess we'll owe you this if you do that. It's not a financial transaction. The biggest set piece in the film is for me is that once they get done with the scavenger hunt and that next morning when Godfrey is the butler, you know, you made reference to that as far as like how many of these butlers have been in here before and who is gone. And the relationship that he has with Molly is pretty fantastic. The, uh, the only servant who seems to be able to stick around for whatever reason, probably because I think she recognizes the insanity. Probably because she's not being sexually harassed by That's the rest true. of the family. <laughs> <laughs> But I love how he visits each of these doors and how, and especially the way that Molly describes the women in animal terms, you know, like yeah. the lioness, you know, go to her cage, these kind of terms that she's using. And God, I mean, yeah, each, none of the women remember who he is. And it feels like none of the women have any memory of the previous night. I mean, I think maybe Irene is the one that has a little bit of memory, but I mean, this whole thing you were talking about you know who rode the horse in here who broke all these windows i mean they are just a bunch of terrible toddlers who are probably out there drinking like crazy and then come back the next morning and have no memory of what they've done i mean the fairies the the little sprites that uh plague uh mrs bullock i just like okay does she have like the dts or something what's going on here and women should never drink to excess but their behavior is strictly masculine 
you know, stealing horses, taking, you know, waifs and strays in. And it's very, very masculine, although they're supposed to be these genteel rich women with their posh clothes and everything. They're, they, you know, they're like uh, marauders when they're out on the phone. And the fact that the mother is in on it as well. I like it when she's introduced to Godfrey and she's like, what is he? This man is asking for bucks. What are these bucks? She's like, <laughs> what are bucks? <laughs> and, and, then, and then a minute later she's saying, what did he call us? A nitwit. What's a nitwit? And yet I actually would have thought that nitwit was the sort of polite wealth unlimited version of fuckwit. So yeah, that bit doesn't quite ring true. She she surely would have known that as an expression. But these are people that are not used to hearing no. They're not used to hearing no, are they? And the fact that Godfrey consistently says no, I think, is why they become so fascinated with it. Because even the father never says no to them. No, nobody ever says no, and he kind of. So it has got. I'm saying it's like you know, gender reversal, and it's quite subversive, but also it has got, you know, it's got this hidden Hollywood message of these women just need a firm <laughs> hand, you know. <laughs> Godfrey's the one to do it because he stands up to them. But that whole kind of uh, abrasive energy is is a key thing in the screwball. And I mentioned this last time, and I still haven't found the essay again, but Molly Haskell wrote a really amazing essay on the screwball and how, uh, the fact that they couldn't show sex anymore, so they turned it into aggression. Uh, and so you'd see all this banter and aggressive sort of conflict between couples, which really stood in for sex. With the screwball, it's like that fine line between love and hate. It always starts off with a couple that really, and we'll get to that when we do An Awful Truth, which is a masterpiece in that. But the fact that people can hate each other and love each other simultaneously at the same time, or they spend the whole film hating each other, and then at the end they just have the kiss. So it's, I, I love that part of it, but it does have this weird kind of, you know, they just need a man in there to give them a firm hand <laughs> and kind of point out he's, he's very honest with them about how ridiculous they are all the time as well. And their reactions are... <gasps> oh, my God, you know, why is he saying this to me? Because they've never heard it. No one's ever told them. They have no idea how crass they're being, especially with you get extra points for the scavenger hunt if you bring in a forgotten man. And then let's all go down to the local Hooverville and pick up a forgotten man. Just the way that Cornelia comes in and she's just like, want to make $5? Like, no human connection is just to your point Morris it's that transactional thing just like hey I can give you five dollars if you want to do this and obviously they've picked up another guy for five quote unquote bucks you mind telling me just what a scavenger hunt is well a scavenger hunt is exactly like a treasure hunt except in a treasure hunt you try to find something you want and in a scavenger hunt you try to find something that nobody wants mm, like a forgotten man that's right and the one that wins gets a prize only there really isn't a prize it's just the honor of winning because all the money goes to charity that is if there's any money left over but then there never is rich people having fun for themselves it's supposed to be for quote-unquote charity but they never give any money to charity oh talking of the auction not the auction the scavenger hunt i wanted to bring up franklin pangborn he's the guy he's like the he oversees it because I love this guy. You know, last time on Ball of Fire, we talked about the stock characters and how they're everywhere. This guy is in almost every fucking screwball comedy. And he usually plays these, like, uptight, haughty, sort of slightly camp, where he was, like, he's coded queer in a lot of films. 
and is kind of subversive in and of himself, but he just turns up in so many of these work with Mitchell Lyson was, uh, I think he worked with Sturgis with um, Frank Capra and he's just wonderful. And he's playing his like typical role in this is kind of, you know, he's in charge of this thing, but doesn't seem very impressed with the people. And he usually turns up as like hotel managers or, you know, these kind of officious types, but with a kind of delusions of grandeur. And the fact that he always manages to pack this into a minute of screen time, he's barely, a, a few films, I think Easy Living, he's got like three whole scenes in it, but generally he only gets like a minute or two of screen time and he just makes such an impression. I just, I love him because he, he's one of those faces that shows up time and time again with this, within this area of comedy and he's just so in this the way he's, he's kind of dealing with these people. You were like, it's like the Lord of the Flies in there. He stood there with this little suit on and they were all screaming. There's, uh, you know, people with ch- live chickens and, and tramps and God knows what, all screaming at him and he's looking down his nose at them. I just really wanted to give him a shout out because I, I love him so much. This is the actor who you're saying he was playing like as the overseer. Yeah, like the scavenger hunt, the one who tots, I don't know what his role, he tots up the, he announces the winner. What would you call that? Like a compare or something? The MC, he wants to uh, feel the whiskers on um, Godfrey's face just to make sure they're not glued on. But it's the way he touches them with this kind of disgust. He sort of brushes them with it. Oh, he's such a good. He, he was just so good at these little roles and was so prolific as well. He did loads of films. See, that was the moment where I thought that these people had gone from being, well, to use the expression in that they use in the film, utter nitwits, to being somewhat arrogant. Well, do you mind if I feel your beard? And he looks at Godfrey. Godfrey gives him that look and he thinks, uh no, maybe I won't. I'm not sure if it's because he finds the whole thing disgusting or because he's terrified of him. But either way, I thought it was quite a moment. So can we just talk for a moment about Carol Lombard? I mean, I know you've gone from like a one-minute character actor, but uh, Carol oh, I Lombard. I had to shout out Franklin, though. Cause, cause oh, no, last, no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. last time saying- we talked about our stock characters and we never remember their names, but they – but Franklin's one that I do remember because I just love him. He's one of those things. But, yeah, Carol Lombard, something else. She's incredible. First time I saw her was, you know, years ago watching To Be or Not To Be, probably in the 80s after having seen the Mel Brooks version. And I'm that weirdo who actually doesn't mind the Mel Brooks version. I'm quite a fan of that. But maybe that's because I saw it first. But then I saw the Ernest Lubitsch film and I – just sort of like thinking about the three roles that I know her for, and I know she's done a ton more, but between To Be or Not To Be and 20th Century, which I only just watched last week, and this, I love her range. To Be or Not To Be, you know, she's having to play this character that's negotiating a whole bunch of situations, like fighting off Commandant Earhart, concentration camp Earhart or something like that, having to fight off his advances and having to deal with the ego of Jack Benny. And she just does that so effortlessly. In 20th Century, her character is in some ways the antithesis of the character that she is in My Man Godfrey because she's the yeller. She's the the shouter. She's um, 
maybe she's certainly not predatory or nasty like Cornelia is, but she feels entitled like Cornelia does. She, um, but then again, she's dealing with John Barrymore in that film, uh, and the two of them. They're both assholes in uh, their characters in that film. So you just sort of think, how is this going to end up? Is some new character going to come in and basically have it all over them? And spoiler alert for people who haven't seen it, John Barrymore, maybe once again, as the male, ends up sort of getting his own way. But, yeah, she's definitely like the yeller, the the demander of her own ways in 20th century. And in My Man Godfrey, You'd be fooled the first time from seeing it if you didn't pick up just how manipulative that she could get because on the surface, she's actually really, really sweet. And I wouldn't even necessarily say that she was airheaded because the rapid-fire delivery of the dialogue, as I said earlier on, when she's saying to Godfrey something like, um, oh, please, I love it when you use big words. I'd love What does proprietary mean? I think she knows. She knows what it means, the back and forth. And that's something which... Coming to the point, I think you you were talking before, Kat, is about the aggression of a screwball comedy. I think this rapid-fire delivery may be speaking to what it is that you're talking about them. And the back and forth, there's no deep breaths taken. There's no consideration. It's all blah, 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 back and forth. As sweet as she is, she's no airhead. And I just sort of put that as delivered because of the that the rate of the dialogue as it's delivered back and forth in that film. Well, she paid some smart women. I think Lombard was one of the best women in Screwball, and she worked with them, um, Fred McMurray, a number of times, and um, Hands Across the Table and Swing High, Swing Low, I totally recommend both. Hands Across the Table, especially where she plays like this manicurist who is out to bag a rich man. And that one is incredible. The women in Screwball stood out because they had a certain intelligence to them, uh, all of them, not just in the banter, but just how they were often navigating very male worlds. You saw the first time you saw the career woman appear in films. You get like a lot of female reporters, like His Girl Friday being like the, the number one of those. But women that were smart, uh, and they were still wanted the whole man thing. They still wanted the whole romance thing, but they wanted it on their own terms. They wanted to keep their career, all their money. They, some of them were independently wealthy, and they were all really smart. And in this one, she kind of weaponizes perceptions about the the stupid rich girl to get her own way. She can play her father. She's very good at playing her father. She does those temper tantrums and the fainting and 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 she is just absolutely brilliant. She's playing it completely in a different vein to how you usually see her, like where she can be more manipulative or she's a lot more intelligent, openly intelligent, or will rebuff men. But in this one, she instantly has eyes for Godfrey. And um, first of all, you think, oh, she's just stupid and she's just taken to this man. She's obsessed with him and she's doing the whole dreamy-eyed crushing but as the film goes on you realize she actually wants to own him she initially sees him as property and is quite put out when he says no i'm i'm i've got a job here you you know pushes it and, and, and announces that engagement in a strop and you know the tears and everything it's just so brilliant it's just awful that she died so young because she was such a talent you know within the comedy 
just so amazing. A lot of the women in Screwball were absolutely beautiful. They they fulfilled the Hollywood glamour thing. But the fact that they were actually smart at the same time, without being twisted, like, you know, without being the total femme fatale or some sort of caricature, they were actually intelligent. You know, you see all these conversations these days about modern cinema as if this is a conception of the Oh, women are smart in these films, you know, girl power. And it's like, watch the films from the 30s, you know, because that's where it starts. That is where you, you see it. And pre-code even more. You've got crazy films in pre-code when it comes to women. And so that's why, for me, the Hays Code was like one of the worst things that ever happened because that character type was totally shut out. It was like completely taken away. Women could no longer have any moral ambiguity. They, they just had to serve this picture of the American wife, the American sort of a fiancé or, you know, they had to fit this very, couldn't smoke, couldn't drink, couldn't have affairs, couldn't even be in bed. I love that it was the twin bed era where all married couples slept in separate beds. But it was awful. It was such a disservice. And you see it in these earlier films. You've got young women inviting a mat, like a strange man, into their bedrooms and trying to trap them in there, <laughs> literally trying to have sex with them. And uh, it's amazing. She was so brilliant, so brilliant. It's one of the biggest tragedies, I think, of um, American cinema was her death. It was just sad. Well, there's one line in this film that I'm wondering how they got away with it, with the code, and it's just in relation to what you just said, Kat, about you know the the bedroom, you know, and Godfrey entering all their bedrooms, and there's that scene where uh, where she comes into Godfrey's bedroom, and she's and she says to him, "Oh, isn't it funny? This morning uh, you sat on my bed, and now I'm sitting on yours." And I'm, how did that get away with that in 1936? But obviously they're pushing to see what can we get away with. You know, the Hayes Code wasn't necessarily a, a fist on a table from day one, and you know, obviously is. I'm presuming other films uh, also sort of pushed uh, those boundaries that they got to a stage where they said, all right, uh, enough, you can't do that, you can't do this, we're going to harden the code. I I say this completely as a guess. Well, in 34, Joseph Breen came into office and he was like a Catholic, just really into Catholic shit. (laughs) Um, But he was a, a busybody as well. The Breen office wanted to oversee every single script, so he was a real meddler. What you see in this time, obviously, as a writer, I'm really drawn to writing anyway. It's clever writing, and that's why I love this period. The writers took on this very subversive role of making things look fairly benign on paper, but when they were on the screen in the setting, that you'd think, hang on a minute, this is a... And that was the problem they had with Mae West. Like they couldn't, they felt they couldn't trust her because they, these scripts would go through and it would look fine. And anything that came out of Mae West's mouth sounded pornographic. And they just realized <laughs> they couldn't win with it. They couldn't trust her to say anything at all because she would just make it sound pornographic. But the writing, I love this era of writing because you can see they weren't going to take it. They were like, and Wilder was one of the best at this. Some of the innuendo Wilder would get in there was just like, oh, this is so good. They didn't see it, though. And it did get harder, like but, and like Mike said, with the war and everything. They kind of knuckled down. But this was only like two years in. 
So there was still a lot of experimentation and they were like, okay, well, that's probably okay. But then they, I think they started to realize a lot of the writers were just taking the piss <laughs> and literally putting things in. So when they first announced the code, that's why you get the whole pre-code era. They first announced the, the code, Will Hate comes in to clean up Hollywood and everyone takes the piss. They take absolutely no notice. They start making gangster films and, you know, these films with rape in them and like Babyface, which I mentioned earlier, starts with like sexual assault and a speakeasy. And they just took no notice because Hollywood didn't want to shut it down. Those were the pictures that sold, you know, sex, drugs, uh, gangsters. And they, and they were just like, they didn't even bother paying lip service to it. But as soon as Breen came in, it all got shut down. Like it completely and utterly got shut down. And that guy was like, he was like our BBFC. He was such a flipping big. He was the guy who I think actually wrote to Ingrid Bergman when she left her husband for Rossellini. Uh, this is how arrogant he was, telling her to go back to her family. <laughs> He, he was, and he kept files on actresses. I think Bergman was in there initially because her eyebrows were dangerous. Uh, he would keep like files on, you know, uh, unclean women and stuff. It was, it's so American, like only in America. And they get like a church man in to oversee cinema. And of course, there's the anti Semitic thing in there as well because they felt like the Jews were creating a new Babylon in Hollywood and, you know, and so the Catholics got all pissed off. And you saw the start of the Catholic Legion of Decency, which is incredible. And you just think, where else in the world could this happen? Land of milk and honey, baby. But still everyone was obsessed with the sex, though. So This month, we are talking about a lot of directors. Yeah, we're, uh, last we talked about Hawks. We're going to talk about Capra, McCary, but Gregory LaCava doesn't come up in like that pantheon, which is very interesting to me because this is hailed as one of the best screwball comedies ever. It's part of the National Film Archives, was nominated for what, four Oscars. And it's just like, this made a big deal, but like LaCava, it's tough to find anything about him. I mean, I know he started in animation, which then helps a little bit when it comes to comedy stuff. You know, we've seen like, uh, what was that guy's name? Tashlin, you know, j- just the people that come from animation going into live action. And this film is really well directed. I especially like that bedroom uh, sequence that I was talking about earlier, where each time he goes into a bedroom, it's shot a little bit differently. So like one point, He's on one side of the room. It's the mother on the other side of the room, and the camera just kind of pans over. There's another one. I think it's Cornelia's bedroom where the camera's over his shoulder looking at things. So it's like, are we seeing it more from his, you know, it's not a POV shot, but it's pretty close to being a POV shot. And then versus the other one, which was more of like a tableau, and we're seeing things as he's seeing things. It, I thought that was very well done. I really like to, I mean, for me, this movie, it, it is completely all about Eugene Pallet. And when uh, Godfrey comes out of Irene's bedroom, the last bedroom, and uh, Molly has set his 
coat and hat there in his bag, you know, as if to prepare him to leave because of all the other butlers have left. And he comes out and he's got those under his arm. And the father, Eugene Pallet, Mr. Bullock, sees him. And just the way that they match each other's steps on the, the big stairway coming down and the way that Eugene is looking at him and, you know, just like, well, I should tell you before I, uh, before we do this, I used to be the middleweight head champion. <laughs> that fucking voice, man. His voice is so good. It's a national treasure. I think this is the plague of like the studio contract system though. And it's, uh, it's a bit of like a, bugbear of mine and has become more so over recent years within the contract system you had some amazing directors but they weren't auteurs they were just contract players unfortunately when we've seen like a revival of classic cinema like we have in the last say couple of decades but even more so in the last five years or so criterion seem to be going hard on screwball uh, and we're suddenly seeing lots of revival screenings and stuff. But within that field, like when you look at like scholarship that ultimately frames the narrative around film, it's always the easy ones to talk about. So it's the Wilders, it's the Preston Sturgis. I even got called out for Mitchell Lysen, who I fucking love and made so many great Paramount comedies. He is always sort of mentioned as an afterthought, even in his own films, because they were either scripted by Wilder or they were scripted by Sturgis. And so you read about the film and it's all Preston Sturgis this and Preston... So and you're like, hang on a minute, Lysen consistently made these incredible comedies. He worked with Cecil B. DeMille. He was an incredible set dresser and that was one of Wilder's. He was just, he called him a fairy, a set dresser, you know, he was dismissed by people like Wilder. And so he's like kind of ignored, apart from I did find a French documentary once. The French always seem on another thing where they, Mitchell Lysen, auteur. And I was like, yeah. But there's so many of these people in the whole catalogue that were never interviewed, have never been written about. Nobody ever spoke to them. Nobody, because they were contract players, they're deemed unworthy. But if you look at those films, you're like, these films are incredible. Are they the forgotten men? Yeah, they they are the forgotten men because they were journeymen and they would just do whatever the studio asked them to do. But Mike's right. This film is cleverly scripted as it is and it's really well acted as well. Performances are incredible, but it wouldn't work if it wasn't directed in a, in a, like the direction is what keeps all the energy going. And there's a lot to keep track of in this. And it's just tight. Every part of it is tight. And the way it moves along. So some skin in there. You know, because these directors never came out and talked about their art, you know, or their part as an artist, they just, I guess, saw it as a job. They were more craftspeople. No one ever writes about them. And so, you know, I've done quite a few commentaries now on, like, older films from Journeymen. And it's so frustrating re- researching those because you can never find anything. You think, does, did these people even exist? Like, I'll trawl through old newspaper archives on stuff and, and nothing's ever mentioned about anyone. It's sort of like it was all to do with the stars, you know, this star's Carol Lombard or whatever. But the director was never mentioned and you just think, who was this person? I want to know about them. And it's like way too late. It's like, you know, nearly a hundred years later, there's no one left on earth who can tell you now. 
And film criticism missed a trick, especially in the 60s, which would have, you know, when we saw a real revival, like a real kind of film criticism took off, I guess, as its own art form. Um, Someone missed a trick there to get all the contract players on record before they went, because by the 70s, most of them were dead. And now there's nothing left, you know? And it's so sad when you want to seriously want to know about these people and who they were and how they got into film. And, you know, especially as a lot of the films are considered, like, like you said, My Man Godfrey, I said it's top five for me. It's top five for, I think, most of the film world. But I know nothing about the director. Nothing. Even if you try and do, like, serious research into certain things, you, you won't get the answers you want because... It's all about Capra. It's all about, you know, Blue Bitch. It's all about Wilder. It's, you know, that's the ones they were interested in. So, yeah, sorry to rant there, but I, it's so frustrating. And, and the stock characters, you know, all the little people like that, it's just frustrating because it's almost as if that part of their history is completely being, it doesn't exist anymore, even in the, the fan magazines of the 30s or whatever. Unless a, a director happened to be very forceful, like someone like Cecil B. DeMille, for example, who would be giving interviews about the meanings of his films, you know, most of them didn't do that. They were just employ they were employees, which is bizarre because you look at how directors are treated now. They wouldn't have lasted 10 minutes back then, just being told, oh, your next picture is a Carol Lombard vehicle. <laughs> Although I did read, wasn't there like a bit of uh, kind of arguing going on between William Powell and the director on this? Didn't he storm off or Powell, I mean, wasn't he having a bit of... There was one night where they were having trouble finding the character, apparently. So they went out drinking, LaCava and Powell. And the next day, Powell didn't show up to the set and he sent a telegram that said, we may have found Godfrey, but we lost Powell. We'll see you tomorrow. So I guess they had really probably hit the sauce. I can, I can picture William Powell really hitting the sauce when he wants to. And they possibly wrote that moment into the film godfrey gets sourced i love that scene <laughs> he's just like not giving a fuck is he <laughs> he plays drunk very well you know i complain about when people don't play drunk well he can do it very well and i mean half of his career i mean we know powell mostly for the thin man movies where they're drinking like fish in those movies and i fucking love it Everything is solved with a martini. And yeah, in this, he's supposed to be the beacon of propriety. So him getting drunk is pretty messed up. But I think a lot of it is because he's got, I mean, these characters are complex. You know, Godfrey has a past. And I like that he's a mystery through so much of this. And you're right, Kat, as far as this being kind of a flip of a Cinderella story. It's like, we know about the princess more than we know about the prince. And we really, we follow her and get to know her even more than Godfrey. He stands out as what is his story. And I'd like that people even ask him right out. I think the father even says, you know, like, who are you, Godfrey? What is this uh, whole thing? Godfrey kind of is that forgotten man that the father, that Mr. Bullock is in danger of becoming. And Mr. Bullock even says like, you know, that he's the forgotten man and is very open when it comes to talking about his family's money problems. 
I've just been going over last month's bills, and I find that you people have confused me with the Treasury Department. Oh, don't start that again, Dad. I don't mind giving the government 60% of what I make, but I can't do it when my family spends 50%. Well, why should the government get more money than your own family? That's what I want to know. Why should the government get more than your own flesh and blood? Well, that's just a way they have of doing things. Oh, money, money, money. The Frankenstein monster that destroys souls. Please don't say anything more about it. You're a fitting Carlo. And maybe for an entrepreneur, a wealthy man, why would you give the government anything? Can we mention that um, Powell and Lombard were actually married uh, before? They'd, they'd been divorced for a few years. Uh, how actually to then be cast as the love interest for your ex-wife? One that he is the one who suggested her, I think, was really good, too. You know, it's like, wow, you, you want to work with your ex-wife. And because, God, yeah, the chemistry between these two is fantastic. It is palatable. I read this wasn't the first time he'd done that. I think a few years later, he made another film with another ex-wife that he insisted was perfect for the part. So he's very much a, an actor's actor. It seems almost French in its, uh, you know, sensibility, doesn't it? <laughs> I sort of was thinking about, as a whole genre, the stranger coming into the home and changing the dynamic. I was just thinking this. Uh, Tia, Tia Rima did this inspire Pasolini. <laughs> Visit a queue. <laughs> when we were talking about him coming in, I had exactly the same thought. I was thinking, um, and this is probably the only time that anyone's ever going to sort of think to make a connection between my man Godfrey and Visitor Q. I was sort of thinking, and Dan and and Beverly Hills, uh, you know, two exact. I mean, look, probably the the G-rated comparison would be uh, something like Mary Poppins, but you know, there's by the end, everyone's saying, "Oh well, you know, uh, finance the bank. That's rubbish. Let's just go fly a kite. It's very nice." and neatly sort of folded away. Whereas in uh, Visitor Q and Down and Out in Beverly Hills, when the credits roll, the characters are not necessarily improved. They're not necessarily better off. I don't know. They're all breastfeeding at the end of Visitor Q, though. It's quite a nice family uh, snapshot in the greenhouse there. You raise a good point, Kat. But the thing is that the family, for whatever way, they've been brought together. And uh, I think was it the son in Visitor Q turns to, as he's leaving says thank you very much for bringing us together and they're just gonna as you say Kate keep on breastfeeding and making porno movies and the stuff but they'll respect each other there'll be no more beatings I wouldn't necessarily say a genre but I'm sure that there are a ton of films where someone comes in and not necessarily a catalyst because they are getting directly involved in the family's lives but. It takes this outsider to sort of say, right, I've observed what you've got going on here. It's not right. Uh, let me help you change it. Or maybe even not that they're conscious of it. But in each one of those cases, they do change by the end of the film and not necessarily in a cutesy way like in Mary Poppins. Um, as much as I love that film, I love the sort of the uh, strange and out there ways of Visit the Q and 
Denonette and Beverly Hills. But- Which, it popped into my head because Mike said Mysterious Stranger, and then I started thinking of Pasolini's Tiarima and Terence Stamp, who comes in and he changes his whole family, and then I started thinking of it. So it's weird you had the same thought, because it is the idea of the Mysterious Stranger, who somehow becomes a mirror to reflect the worst qualities of these people back to them, without even necessarily being specific about it but just by their behavior and their patience although in Tirima it's sleeping with everyone in the family but you know, <laughs> uh, but just their presence kind of holds up a mirror to these people and it by the end they had this revelation about themselves that they they weren't who they thought they were or who they were acting like they can finally be their true selves or they realize where they've been wrong and I think that's amazing I'd never thought of it in that way but that's totally this has to be an early precursor for that it's definitely a thing it's definitely a thing in certain films the idea of just a stranger coming in and mirroring for people but obviously, Tyrion and Visitor Q, it's obviously done that way. Like, it's specifically a stranger that never speaks. A lot of this is coming from Bodu Save from Drowning, which was out in 32, I think. It was a Renoir film. And that's very, I mean, that's what Down and Out in Beverly Hills is based on. So I can see this kind of playing right into that, though I think that there were, I mean, even just this idea of the stranger coming in and seeing how screwed up the family is, you could go back to like your Chaplins, your Keatons, some of these comedians, even your Marx Brothers, where they come in and it's just like, here's this social setting, and then they come in and set it on fire, basically, sometimes literally with Harper around. You know, you mentioned Margaret Dumont, and I could see, you know, she's that foil, whereas in this one, Mrs. Bullock isn't necessarily, she is a foil a lot of times for jokes because she pretends or doesn't understand what's going on. But my God, she is just a force of nature, though, especially too. And just, I would love to go through and capture every single time that she talks about like, you know, quit picking on Carlo. You're all saying things about Carlo. <laughs> so good. I love that though. And he's all crying he's and running so out the good. room with his chicken leg. Oh, I love Carlo. And it, like when Mr. Bullock's complaining about, you know, um, money and how much they, they need discipline and, and Carlo there. Oh, money, money, money. The Frankenstein <laughs> monster that destroys souls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. I mentioned the song. How do you say it? Orchichiano. How do you say it? The song that you sang at the beginning. Orchichiano. Uh, black Eyes. Uh, it- yes, yeah, Black Eyes, isn't it? It's like a. Yeah, that appears in so many Hollywood films around this period. Like, it's the whole thing in Shop Around the. Uh, is it Shop Around the Corner? Yes. With James Stewart, there's like that cigarette box that plays it. And once I noticed it in that, I noticed it pops up in a lot of other films, like just incidentally from around this period. And I always wondered, like, what is that? Why why that song? Was this like a an in-joke or, you know, did they just have the rights to use it? So, you know, which is probably more. But that. Popping up again, it's like, why, why that song? When he starts singing it, it's <laughs> singing it really loudly. I love the fact that he's like of that, um, 
not really defined European uh, stock character type. Like he could be Slavic, he could be Spanish, he could. He's just Hollywood foreign, which gives this connotation that he's some sort of gigolo. To me, he's very Russian. Between that song and then when he plays Koro Beniki, I think it's called, which most people would know as the theme from Tetris, because he plays that at the tea party. I was so glad my wife yesterday recognized the uh, reference to the Dion quintuplets. They were so popular that they even make it into the dialogue of uh, that woman. If the woman up in Canada can have five children, why can't she? <laughs> oh, man. Mrs. Bullock, she is just so great with all of those little one-liners and just, I mean, she's got that dingbat quality to her, but she is just wonderful and just brings such a joy to this movie. And yeah, her relationship with Carla, I mean, really, you could almost cut out Godfrey and Irene and just have this be about Mr. and Mrs. Bullock and their their freeloader Carlo, <laughs> who's there doing a symphony with his knife and fork, as they say. I, <laughs> I love it. I just love those interactions. I'll be honest, I would have loved to have seen him a bit more in the film he's he's in, in a strange way i mean he's sort of like the comedy's comedy relief if you will but i would have i i think i could have done with at least two or three more scenes with him i would have loved to have seen maybe some development i don't know if if carlo and godfrey ever interact i don't know if there's it's he's so just random I mean, the ob- objectification of men in this film is, <laughs> is wonderful because they objectify Godfrey, they objectify Carlo. These these are just property to them. They don't seem to have any regard for men whatsoever, even the uh, the potential fiancé. I can't remember his name now. Oh, it's God. just a pawn yeah. in their little thing, you know, just gets summoned up. I don't remember proposing. Yeah, you have loads of times. And he just, and then he's just dumped. He's gone by the next sort of, you know, they do the, oh, they've gone off to Europe. And the next thing he's been dumped. I mean, men mean absolutely nothing to these women, <laughs> women, which is just so amazing. They are completely objectified. And again, when does that, when we hear Hollywood about Hollywood and we hear about actresses, it's all, uh, one thing I'd happily stamp out is the fact that any time an um, actress is mentioned, it's like the lovely Carol Lombard, the so-and-so, but you never see that happen to men. Uh, you know, it's just William Powell, actor <laughs> or star, but there's always some weird little thing that's patched onto women's names that describes some kind of physical quality about them. You know, the glowing brunette, the buxom is one that really makes you want to stab. The buxom Mae West. Don't do that. But in this film, it's kind of totally turning that around to objectify men as props to do whatever. You know, you've even got Carlo, like you said, playing out that chimp act on command, probably for chicken drumsticks and something else. When Godfrey walks in and it is just that scene of chaos with Carlo doing the ape and just her crying her eyes out. I mean, just everything is, you know, again, you might as well have set something on fire in this room because it, it is just madness. It's that get from community where the guy comes in with the pizza and the whole room's on fire. You know, it's just it's madness. And I just love how he is that center of propriety amongst all of this insanity the name of the guy who she is quote unquote engaged to van rumpel i love that his name is van oh, rumpel, van rumpel. Yeah. 
That's it. We haven't talked really too much about Cornelia. And it is wonderful. She's great. I mean, this movie having a villain like her is fantastic. And I have to say, I am not that familiar with Gail Patrick, but she has a beautiful voice. She ended up a massive producer, one of the kind of early female producers in in Hollywood. She's she's just a force of nature, isn't she? She's wonderful. She is actually a predator. She's not in this kind of femme fatale twisted way. She she means business, you know. She's yeah, she uh, Well, and it's all about revenge for being quote unquote pushed into the ash pile and after that you humiliate her once and she's going to do whatever she can to get back at this guy. I love her. I absolutely love her. Mike, you were talking earlier on about how we view the shots as Godfrey enters each one of the uh, the bedrooms first thing on the first day of his tenure as a butler. One thing I noticed was early, like at the scavenger hunt, as he comes out, we see the shots of him and Irene from the side, but when Cornelia comes in, we get a, a shot face on, him looking, him looking at the camera and her looking at the camera, representing the two looking at each other and you know it's going to go one of two ways either they're going to be the worst of enemies and there's going to be shit going down or despite all the arguing they're going to be the ones who end up going off with each other by the end of the film and i just thought it was clever in that regard that it kept you guessing you might have sort of thought well yeah it's a a haze code era film that's got to have a happy ending so yeah of course he's going to end up going off with carol lombard but i i love that that look face to face it's either a challenge of enemies or they're going to end up walking off into the sunset as whatever a uh, uh, mindful equals or something like that it's just that beautiful shot i just love that that setup I really appreciate too the Tommy Gray character uh, that Alan Mowbray plays. I thought for sure he was going to be an antagonist, uh, that he recognizes Godfrey for who he is and knows the secret of Godfrey's past, but he ends up being a friend. And I, I especially like when Godfrey puts him on the spot to come up with um, how they knew each other. <laughs> <laughs> which is great. <laughs> and then they're seen together at the bar because so much of this movie takes place in the Bullock house. And so those moments outside of the Bullock house really then take on much more importance just because we are outside of there. So them at the bar catching up. And then again, there's more Cornelia um, chicanery going on there. And then also we get to see this whole thing of like, Godfrey's got a plan, but we don't know what that plan is. It's like now suddenly we have two mysteries because now we still are trying to find a little bit more about Godfrey's past. But then there's also what is going on. What is Godfrey planning with Tommy Gray? I thought it was nice, too, that his name is Tommy Gray. So it's like a the ambiguity of him. I don't know if Bullock is, uh, you know, a, a British reference with uh, that. I think it's spelled different than you would spell Bullocks, but. So you're, what you're saying is never mind the bullets. That's exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, you should definitely pay attention to them because they're going to 
play play an important part in the in the end there. Yeah, and they talk about that incident in Boston and how Godfrey gave her everything I had, and he makes that weird thing about how the Parks, his family, they've been puppets for ten generations, and I just kept wondering, puppets to who or to what? You know, is it that wealth is? the thing that manages them and drives them. And then once he doesn't have wealth, he's able to recognize this. But I do like that, um, you know, that he is the former rich person. And so then he really now values what, what the other guys in the, uh, the dump have to say. And I like how the guys in the dump all call him Duke. Like he's uh royalty amongst the hobos. Yeah. But it seemed to be that, um, Every one of them called him Duke. It seemed like it was a, a long-time nickname. But, yeah, maybe, as you say, because he he was from wealth to begin with, but he, he also sort of pointed out that there was one other guy who'd previously been a banker who'd gone and paid out. Once they sort of fell into uh, financial uh, discrepancies, that, that he paid out all the investors or he paid out all his staff so he's not necessarily the only person who'd come from uh, come from wealth. In fact, I think you know pretty much it was an implication that all these people were had previously been of money, but had just fallen on hard times. We is not an implication that they'd all lived in poverty and uh, all their lives. So yeah, it's interesting about that nickname. I do want to talk for a couple of minutes about the film's ending and. I have problems with the film's ending, but possibly because when it was filmed, 1936, maybe there was no other way for it. Godfrey has finally taken control of his life. He's gone and told the Bullock family, right, I'm out of here, but this is my gift to you. You've had some issues. I did some financial investment. I I invested this pearl necklace that Cornelia tried to frame me for stealing and I'd made the returns back. So with that, I've been I've managed to buy stock and I've managed to save your company, Mr. Bullock. And um, I've managed to start up my own business with some extra profits. Everything's good. And he's managed to extrapolate himself from that family. I mean, I don't know, just maybe it's just me, but I would have liked to have seen like as the dark horse, the unexpected thing that if there was going to be a romantic ending, he would have taken molly with him into the sunset yeah but they can't do that they can't well do yeah that. In, in, if the film had been made in this century or even in the latter half of the 20th century it would have ended up like that i like to think yeah but, but they weren't allowed to do that in hollywood it all had to be about the star no no I, I i get that but i'm just sort of thinking in an ideal storytelling world it's almost like you know here we get this story that has a lot to say about the differences between the between the wealthy class and the poverty class and by the end when Irene gets the happy ending that she wants it's almost like she's the one member of the Bullock family that hasn't really learned anything you know Cornelia has learned something learned a little bit of humility Alexander you get the feeling that he'll be running his business a different way, maybe more ethically. We don't actually know how he ran his business, but you get the feeling. I I even get the feeling that Mrs. Bullock is going to try to not be so empty-headed But uh, once the curtain closes. But it seems like Irene, she wants her way. She wants Godfrey 
come hell or high water and she's going to get him. And uh, that final line, which is, you know, in some ways it's, it's as great as, uh, well, nobody's perfect from some like it hot. She says, don't worry, Godfrey, it'll all be over in a minute. And it seems it's funny in one way, but it just it, it just disturbs me in another level. And I just sort of think that it's taken the whole social context of the film. It's just maybe gone and swept that under the rug. So, No, and- I disagree because I think in terms of like uh, when you think about how Hollywood insisted on this kind of moralism, in a lot of their films, it's the perfect fuck you because she hasn't learned anything and she still gets what she wants. Why does she have to redeem herself? Why can't she be horrible? Um, What annoys me is the much later film Pretty in Pink, which is the absolute fucking sellout. You know, you could have the poor kid or the revolting yuppie and you go for the revolting yuppie, you know. But this kind of is... Um, I don't know, it's slightly audacious. It's like she's not going to change, she's not going to apologise, and she still gets the guy. So, you know, I kind of like that because quite often, especially later on, Hollywood is would attach this whole kind of, you know, redemption and salvation. Well, women generally weren't allowed to be that misbehaved anyway. Or like I said, like Gloria Graham would be left this dying this awful slow death a gunshot in the back where she's lying on the floor and confessing all her wrongs. You know, it was that thing. And in this, Irene is just like, I'm not going to change. Look, I'm just going off with Godfrey now, probably going to run his club into the ground. I just think it's great. It is really great. I think a lot with these Hollywood films, you do have to kind of suspend any, you know, and accept that they're Hollywood you know, they're all about the happy ever after. And that's good. It's weird. I went into this weird, you mentioned the pandemic, uh, Maurice, like earlier. I went into this weird thing at the beginning of the pandemic, the comfort viewing, where I just consistently watched screwball comedies for four months because they reminded me of my childhood. And, and I didn't want to watch horror films and I didn't want to watch, I just, all I did was watch like Harry Grant, like all these films that I saw as a kid with my dad because that made me feel safe and it was weird that it was the like the screw that's all I could watch was like screwball 30s comedies because there's some comfort to the I guess like the escapism and even though my man Godfrey's quite satirical and it has a lot of things to say about class at the end of the day it's also a fairy tale it's also a bit silly and I couldn't deal with anything that was too kind of, you know. Uh, it was that and House Moving Castle, which I watched on a loop like every day for about a month. That's all I could cope with because they are kind of simplistic as well, aren't they? And they're very escapist and they look gorgeous. And so I think you do have to kind of let go. And it's the sort of thing that um, the reason why a lot of them were discarded because they were seen as quote-unquote women's films, which is another one of my key rants that I do a lot. The Hollywood woman's film, you know, as if it was like romantic comedy is like dang there. It's, it's considered even worse than horror, <laughs> like on the scale of things. The romantic comedy and the melodrama are the two worst genres in terms of serious film criticism. Because it's like, oh, it's just so fake and it's just so, and it's like, I love that. Give me the fake. I love the melodrama. I love seeing women weaponized crying, which, which, 
And Carol Lombard does all the way through this weaponized crying because she knows her dad obviously can't cope with it. But Godfrey's just like, yeah, whatever, puts her in the shower. And, uh, but, you know, weaponized femininity is a wonderful thing. So, yeah, give me all that. I don't need things to be realistic or pure cinema. Or <laughs> Give me a Paramount set, some Travis Banton costumes, some stars that look like they're not even human. Uh, put them in a ridiculous situation and I'm happy. Speaking of ridiculous situations, let's go ahead and take a break. And we'll be back right after these brief messages. On the Vintage Video Podcast, we'll be reviewing every single wide release of the 1980s in chronological order. Over 250 episodes to enjoy and thousands more to come. John enters the store now to order another can of ether. I picture him outside like Homer with the gasohol. <laughs> when for you, when for me. I also like to think about that the kids renew their vow not to talk about the murder. By, by murdering someone. <laughs> They're taking a blood oath with someone else's blood. This stuff is seven times more powerful than uranium. And yeah. they, they open up the vault that it's contained in, not wearing any kind of protective nope. gear. Yeah. And it's wooden crates. Wooden crates. It's like the guys in Chernobyl picking up the graphite rocks yeah. and going, meh, because there's rocks. Hugging the elephant foot. <laughs> just like, oh, this thing's smooth. It's so warm. He turns to dial the number from the classified ad without even thinking about the numbers. <laughs> we know this because we can hear his thoughts. And he's talking about how AJ was right that ninjas are misdirecting him. They're misdirecting the I really wish that he'd turn to the phone and been like, six, six, five. Vintage Video. We're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. Hello, this is Will, a writer of three films plus a Christmas special. And this is Kevin, a writer of one and a bit films and three and a bit episodes of TV. Okay. We're screenwriters by day, podcasters by night. Yeah, okay, Batman. <laughs> and we're the hosts of The Best Bits, a show where each episode we pick our favorite film scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes, such as best fighting, best sexy. And best Tom Cruise running scene. Why should I know these things? Do you know them? And we have the world's first podcasting AI to keep us on the straight and narrow. Say hello, Bud Bud. Hello. So, if you're looking for another film podcast to subscribe to, why not check us out? The Best Bits with Will Collins and Kevin Lehan. And Pod Bot. Yeah, it's good crack. <laughs> Irish crack. So if you want legal crack, subscribe to Best Bits Podcast. Please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are back, and we are talking about My Man Godfrey, specifically talking about the remake of My Man Godfrey, which took place 21 years later. And if you don't remember, 1957 wasn't really known for the Great Depression. So this movie starts and goes in a lot of different directions, even though... It's basically My Man Godfrey from 1936, but cut down quite a bit. It feels like there's a lot less to it with this film. Can I just say, this was a Ross Hunter film. Do you guys know about Ross Hunter? I don't. It's what nobody does. He's one of my weird obsessions. (laughs) Right, Ross Hunter was a producer for uh, Universal International. He was openly gay in Hollywood at a time when you weren't, you know, they didn't allow any people that were gay. And he grew up on Paramount comedies, the the, the My Man Godfrey era. And in his time as a producer, he wanted to recreate this like era of Hollywood glamour. So you can always tell a Ross Hunter film 
because it looks gorgeous. Like he would get people like Irene out of retirement to do costumes. He'd get these like old guard out to do set design. And so this is like my man Godfrey 2.0 just without the humor. But this is the guy who was responsible for those Doris Day comedies like, you know, the Pillow Talk era and the Douglas Sirk, uh, Technicolor melodramas. But for him, it was more about aesthetic. And as a producer, he always had his every finger in every pie, you know, because he had a very specific aesthetic. And also, weirdly, gave a lot of interviews in his time because he was considered like, you know, he hosted all these celebrity parties. He was quite the character. They always called him gregarious in press, from press which is like code for gay, the gregarious uh, Confirmed bachelor. Yeah, confirmed <laughs> bachelor, even though he openly lived with a guy. <laughs> and um, and so this is like his version of classic Hollywood. I've seen this one a couple of times, and I'm going to have to admit, as much as I love his work, and I especially love the Doris Day stuff because that was just fantastic, and I love how that his films look and how they feel, like his, how he loved Technicolor and gorgeous uh, costumes. And uh, he quite often get old stars out of retirement as well. I think Myrna Loy, people like Myrna Loy pop up in his films. And there's a real love there. You know, he's trying to recreate his own nostalgia. This one, this time, didn't work for me. And maybe it's because I watched the two films again back to back, which I've never just watched them in a double bill. Like, you know, I saw the saw them on TV probably years apart, so I wasn't in that comparison thing. I love David Niven. I absolutely adore him. But watching them side by side, it didn't work for me this time. And I hate to say that. I feel like some sort of traitor to David Niven to say that and to these gorgeous uh, Universal International films from that period, which I'm always kind of championing. But this is not one of the good ones. I don't want to say it, but it's not. You can say it. Yeah, you can say it because it's not. If you didn't know when it was made, then just taking it on face value. I didn't particularly find it very funny. I found June Allison very shouty. Oh, she's so annoying. Didn't have the nuance that uh, Carol Lombard did. The ending where it is the traditional romantic Hollywood ending. This was not a screwball comedy. I mean, this was not even taking into account that this was not the era of the screw, screwball comedy. It didn't I mean you had your Carlo his ridiculousness uh, and you had the family still behaving poorly but I didn't find it as ridiculous and you know, I mean that in a good way as as the first one but the thought occurred to me and I don't know you can correct me if I'm wrong on this but I, I sort of figured that the fact that this film was set in 1957 the major difference about Godfrey, the character, is in the first one, he's the forgotten man, he's looking out for his fellow man. And in 1957, all about uh, America's heightened consciousness about uh, communism in Hollywood and the whole McCarthy era, they wouldn't dare make a film that was talking about looking after your fellow man. So they make him an illegal immigrant. There's a line later on in the film that really drove it home for me where Irene says to 
Godfrey, you're being forced offshore. You're going to come back to me. And he says, well, yes, I, I definitely want to come back. I love America. And I thought, yeah, his things about America being amazing is just kind of like, what to stop? I could just see Huack saying, you will put this line into the film and you will make Godfrey an illegal immigrant who thinks that coming to America is the best thing ever. He's not going to be this forgotten man. He's the, the character is completely different. Why? So, whereas in the original film, we're feeling some level of concern or sympathy for Godfrey's plight and his fellow humans plight who he's trying to look after in this. He's just the guy who was smuggled on a boat. It's strange though, for a Ross Hunter film, if you look at um, Pillow Talk, which is one of my favorite comedies from that era with Doris Day and Rock Hudson, which is just that, does have an energy of the screwball, you know. I don't know if either of you've seen it, oh, but Doris good Day. Lord, yes, that's one of my favorites. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Like Doris Day is a, a kind of uptight career woman who lives next door to. I saw it described in one review as a Rock Hudson's fuck pad, but they share a phone line. They share this party line and she can never make a phone call because he's always on there chatting these women up. And so this like bizarre masquerade uh, starts with those two uh, and it ends up, you know, they're going to get together. But it's so brilliant and it's also so gorgeous, you know, and it's got that very specific hunter style with these amazing costumes. Like Doris Day is in a different costume every time she goes into a different room. But but the energy of that and Doris Day and Rock Hudson, Doris Day managed to revitalise her whole career doing that, doing that film and then ones after it in that vein. And so Hunter did understand the screwball, but I, I don't know. Obviously, it's the kind of nature of the plot. It could have changed Godfrey slightly more, like this whole like, I love America weirdness. It just, I don't know, it didn't have the edge. The characters were nowhere near as funny. David Niven can be hilarious, and he always plays it straight. It didn't work with this, though. His lines weren't quite there, or I don't know. He's great if he can just deliver a dry, completely dry, straight line. He is he's so funny. And in this, I don't know, he, got, he had the air of someone who didn't give a shit, like, why am I in this film at certain points? Do you, do you get that? Like, he's kind of phoning it in a bit. He just, uh, I'm not saying his performance was bad, but I don't know. Mike, you went and sent us a link to the uh, radio play. I, mean, I believe they actually did it twice, but one of the radio plays of My Man Godfrey, I'm not sure what year it was done, but it would have been closer to the time of the original film and david niven is in that but he's playing the um the gray character he obviously had an affection for the story i'm not sure you know about the backstory about how when his star had risen but possibly by 1957 he's not playing a character role he's going to get the lead so he obviously had enough affection for the story i don't want to sign ageist at all but june Allison is was 40 when she did this role. Mm-hmm. As opposed to Carol Lombard, who is, what, 28, I think? And I don't know. She just sounded like a very loud, mature woman. Like, you know, just what is this casting? This casting is very strange. Well, I think originally it was supposed to be Doris Day in this role. Doris Day was in her 40s by then, but... 
kind of managed to, well, Hunter specifically kind of recognize, actually, Doris Day's got this capacity to be this very modern type of professional woman, you know, hasn't been bogged down by kids or a family, and she's all about her career. And that did feel fresh and modern. But with June Allison, I couldn't work out what was going on. Like, what? On earth, why are you acting like a a child, uh, a loud child? Because she didn't do what Carol Lombard did, which was subtly manipulative and so good. There's like a subtlety to Lombard's performance. I didn't feel that with June Allison. She just like like <laughs> she to come in and shout a lot, like every time, just shouting. David Niven in that really annoying... And it's like, this is kind of perverse, this film. She has a very interesting voice. I mean, it's it's almost a little Brenda Vaccaro, but not quite. But it's it's got that raspiness to it. I found it kind of sexy, but I don't think for this role. He is the best butler we have ever had. Well, I'm sure Godfrey didn't take it. Oh, of course, we don't know very much about him. Godfrey wouldn't touch that old bracelet of yours with a fart. Now, just a minute. What do you mean you don't know very much about him? Well, what I mean is we didn't get him from an employment agency, and he didn't have any references, and we've never been able to find out who he is or where he came from. Oh, you're all on the wrong track. It's just silly to think of Godfrey wearing a diamond bracelet. <laughs> yeah, well, just the same. I think we'd like to talk to him. Where is he? Well, he's very ill, and he's in his room. He's loaded. I'll show you the way, gentlemen. Oh, oh no. By the end of this movie, I was like, I was so sick of her. I was just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I was being mean. No, Not no. Not to disparage her. It wasn't the part for her. It wasn't the right part for her. I'd be interested to know why she was cast. Was this a hunter thing? Because... She actually started out in the 30s. Was this one of his, oh, I'm going to bring back these, like, was that down to him? He usually had a lot to do with the production, especially casting. But it just seemed, maybe he thought he could do a Doris Day with her. I, I don't know, but there was something weird. I mean, I admire, one of the things I admire about him was he would get, quote, unquote, mature women for Hollywood standards and put them in lead roles especially within melodrama, but also like the Doris Day thing. And and you generally didn't see that in Hollywood, but it doesn't work for my man, Godfrey. You know, she's 40. Well, it just seems kind of ridiculous that she's still stuck at home. There's nothing empowering about that. It's like, what are you doing, woman? You're still living at home at 40. You, you're shouting all the time. Like, it's like, what is what is going on with this character? I don't believe this character is a real person. Looking at the actors of the, the parents, so, you know, Eugene Pallet as Alexander as opposed to Robert Keith, Eugene Pallet in the first one seemed like a tougher nut. He was the guy who said, yeah, I, I used to be a boxer and I'm going to punch a block off. And Robert Keith, he didn't say it like not gentle, but that whole conversation that he has with Godfrey, like, oh yes, I'm I'm really doing it tough, but he never says, um, who are you? He, out of amazement. He just he just seems like, I want your pity, Godfrey. What what can you tell me? What can you tell me? And Jesse Royce Landers, I believe her name was, and um, I believe she's in a Columbo episode, Mike. So you might get to um speak about her again, but she as Angelica didn't have the the wackiness or the or just the complete airheadedness 
that uh, Alice Brady brought to the Angelica part. She was just, well, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Um, <laughs> Carlo, uh, you go over there and do that. It, just a lot more matter-of-factual. The characters, which I wouldn't necessarily say we'd grown to love in the first one, but we see why they are the way they are, and it, it, that really propels a story. It just sort of seems like they're going through the motions. Everything's so heavy-handed. Well, their worst bits have been sanded down as well. Even the scavenger hunt, they weren't looking for a person. That's something Irene comes out with. I do want to give a shout-out to Martha Hyer, though, as Cordelia, because I don't understand why uh, Godfrey didn't go off with her, given that she looks the spitting image of Grace Kelly, which is kind of disconcerting. <laughs> she looks so much like Grace Kelly. But you're just like, how are these two sisters? What is going on here? <laughs> I like Jay Robinson a lot, but he was not nearly as wacky as Carlo. He was just kind of this threat that was sitting there. And then it was supposed to be a different actor rather than David Niven. It was supposed to be O.W. Fisher, who very, very handsome man. Not to say that David Niven wasn't, but I think even more of a dashing presence and that he's actually German. So this whole thing of when David Niven talks about how he's Austrian in one of the most posh British accents. English people <laughs> ever to have lived. He was literally in American film, like the professional butler or lord type. And then he comes up with this whole thing about how he's like left Austria during the week. I'm just like, what? what are you saying? Stop this. I can't listen to you anymore. Wasn't that part of a time in Hollywood where the Germans were all played by Englishmen? Or, or the bad the bad guys were always played by Englishmen and the- I don't know, they get anyone vaguely European to play villainous. Or, or the British quite often played sort of shit house lords or whatever, but I can't take David Niven as Austrian. Just rewrite. Have you not got the time to just change a few words of the script? Where are you from? Don't answer that. I asked you a question. Are you English? No, I'm not. Are you Canadian? Well, suppose he is. Is that a crime? If he was more Austrian, he would be more foreign. And so it's more of that, you know, foreign presence that comes into the house, you know, because he's not... He's, it's funny because one of the first things they ask Godfrey in the original is, are you wanted by the police? And he turns that into a joke saying, no, nobody wants me. And in this movie, he is wanted by the police, but they just don't ask him that. The idea of the wanted man versus the unwanted man and just the ways that they're wanted and unwanted just casts a different light over this whole film that you're dealing with essentially a criminal coming in and being your butler. You know, you don't know this guy. Like the whole thing that Cordelia slash Cornelia is like, we might be murdered in our sleep. We don't know who this guy is. Well, I don't know. Having this Austrian would probably have made it a little bit more possible that he would have uh, murdered you in your sleep. It's really bizarre, isn't it? It just doesn't, it does none of it works. Suppose they didn't have Terry Thomas in there as <laughs> an Austrian. The only thing that I kind of liked was that they gender swapped Tommy Graham, made Tommy J. France, Francesca Gray, and have her played by Ava Gabor, which was nice because you know, big fan of uh, of her work, of course. But yeah, she's one of the best 
people in it because she's actually interesting. You know, and she's again this kind of you know woman who's had all these white uh, uh, husbands, and she's just floats around Europe collecting men, and she's covered in jewels. She's actually an interesting character. Well, and had he been more Austrian, it also would have been this more European thing of like, well, now there's this other person who has an accent, and you know what's going on with them. Plus, her being a woman could have made it be more like, you know, she was more of a threat to the June Allison character than just Tommy Gray, because Tommy is, he's a quote unquote threat to Godfrey at first, because we don't know what his relationship is. He also is the one that kind of makes up that whole, oh yeah, Godfrey's got five kids and an ex-wife kind of thing. In this one, it's like, well, with Francesca being a woman, it's like, oh, well, maybe he's had a past with her. And, you know, and which is funny because there is a kind of a reference to, you know, what was it like putting something to bed? And it's like, oh, Godfrey never did that for me when I, you know, I'm like, oh, that's a nice little uh, double entendre there. But yeah, I liked her in this, but it overall, it just, again, it feels like it moves so fast. There's like, scenes that are just not here that would have added a whole lot more. And the whole thing too of, you know, it talks about how we don't know who Godfrey is and we don't know what Godfrey's plan is in this one. He doesn't really have a plan. Like he makes the money back for the family and that's about it. He doesn't have his nightclub. He doesn't have the relationships with the people down at the docks. He doesn't do anything nice for them. He has America. He does have America. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> America really cures all ills. <laughs> One movie that I really tried to track down was unable to was, uh, is it Jose Benazeraf, uh, made a lot of sex films, uh, in the seventies, maybe even before that. He made a film called The French Butler which allegedly has some overtones of Godfrey, but it is much more a uh, French household as a hotbed of various sexual activities. So it's, it's the film that we were fantasizing about as we watched David Niven and June Allison. I haven't seen that one of his actually. It, it, a lot of these films are really hard to come by. Though. Yeah. This one was from 83 and like, you can get a lot of his films from the early eighties, but not this one. It's just like, just jumps right over it when you look on things like Karagarga. All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. There can't be any doubt in marriage. The whole thing's built on faith. If you've lost that, well, you've lost everything. Yes, I suppose when that's gone, the marriage is washed up, isn't it? Do you mean that? Uh-huh. All right, then, that settles it. Well, I guess it does. I wouldn't go on living with you if you were dipped in platinum. So go on, divorce me. Go on, divorce me. It'll be a pleasure. Divorce you? Are you crazy? Do you think I dragged that music lover into court to show people the man you preferred to me? All right, oh. then I'll divorce you. I believe it's customary anyhow for the wife to bring suit. It has something to do with the husband being a gentleman, if you know what I oh, mean. Oh, never mind that stuff. Just get on with the divorce proceedings. I can hardly right. wait. I'll call up our lawyer right now. All right, here. If you don't mind my using him, I don't know anyone else. You get around so much more than I do. That's so. Hello? Hello, Lucy. What's that? Divorce? You and Jerry? Now, now, Lucy. Don't do anything in haste that you might regret later. Marriage is a beautiful thing and you Why can give it every... Why can't we call you back after we've finished eating? 
Please be quiet, will you? Seem agitated, Lucy. Try and calm yourself. I hate to see you take any hasty action in a matter like this. Marriage is a beautiful Why thing. Why don't you finish your meal? Why can't they call you back later? Please shut your mouth. As I was saying, Lucy, marriage is a beautiful thing. And when you've been married as long as I have, you'll appreciate it too. Your food is getting ice cold. You're always complaining about your food. Have you, you shut your it? big mouth? I'll eat when I get good and ready, and if you don't like it, you know what you can do. So shut up. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Leo McCary's The Awful Truth. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Morris and Kat. So, Kat, what have you been up to lately? I did a commentary on Sean Baker's Red Rocket, which is out in the U.S. by Lionsgate, which is an 84 production. And actually, there was a new announcement this week. Uh, Severin are doing a Christopher Lee they did a big box set of Christopher Lee's European work last year, so doing a part two. And I'm on there on Dracula and Son, which is just such, I love it. It's like a French sex comedy. Uh, and they've actually restored the terrible American version, which I spend at least 10 minutes of my commentary telling people not to watch, not knowing they didn't include it. Uh, they, they were going to include it. And then <laughs> I was just like, oh, my God. Because it is terrible talking about things being tampered with and totally recut. But I will be interested to see it restored, though, because they actually found the original negative, I think. But, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And they got loads of other stuff, Christopher Lee rarities on there. I love these box sets because everyone just thinks Christopher Lee in Hammer or Christopher Lee in Lord of the Rings. But he's probably one of the most like prolific British actors of all time. And he worked a lot in Europe was uh, speaking fluent French in Dracula and Sunks. He was, like, proficient in several languages. And uh, it's just a beautiful film, I think. Yeah, really beautiful. So, yeah, that's up for pre-order now, I think. And, Morris, what's the hap, Stadio? For C here, last month we did an episode discussing Summer of Soul, uh, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, and I was thrilled that we got Emma Westwood to come on and talk about that. I bumped into her at the cinema last December and she told me that that was her favourite film of uh, 2020, so oh, so, of 2021. And I said, right, now I've got an excuse to bring you onto the show. So um, please tune into that to hear her do a fantastic job on that. Coming up this month, it was Tim's pick. So we're having a roundtable discussing Erg and Music War. Um, it'll be interesting to sort of work out how you talk about a film that's just concert performances but we'll work it out somehow uh i've asked a fellow called tom austin morgan who does an excellent podcast called band b-a-n-n-e-d band biographies where he discusses the careers of a wide range of uh, punk and new wave acts from the late 70s early 80s really knows his stuff and he's currently the bass player in one of two incarnations working of uh, sham 69 but you might find this particularly interesting, Mike. When I posted in the See Here group that that was a film that we were going to be doing for the month, Skiz Sizik went and sit, uh, posted something saying, oh, I've been working on a documentary about Ergen Music War for the last 20 years. So I sent him a message saying, we have to talk, my friend. And uh, so next week I'll be recording like a separate interview, Projection Booth style, with Skiz just to 
talk as much as he wants to about what he's doing in that documentary uh, about Ergen Music War. And he, I mean, we already had a bit of a conversation yesterday and he already told me about how many people who he's spoken to, or in one case, I think he got a film student in LA who was attending like a 20th anniversary or no, would have been longer than that, but attending an anniversary of Ergen Music War in LA this where Stuart Copeland showed up. So he fed her a whole bunch of questions to, to ask him and he's, he's got a wide variety of people from that film. So, um, yeah, anyway, hopefully that should be really good discussion. Looking forward to that. Love that album. We did a conversation on Ogden's Nut Gone Flake, uh, the Small Faces album from 1968, which was uh, a lot of fun speaking with a drummer uh, originally from here, now living in Japan, who I love, called Ian Kitney. And uh, this month, um, Tom Austin Morgan, who I just spoke about before, uh, is going to be uh, discussing with me uh, the history of the tom robinson band in particular their first album power in the darkness so there's going to be a lot of politics uh in in that discussion but yeah fascinating fellow looking forward to that one too well thank you so much folks for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening to inquire about advertising on the projection booth email sales at advertisecast.com thanks especially to our patreon community if you want to join the community visit patreon.com slash projection booth Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're on the city dump in New York. It's 1934. And my colleagues and I, uh, we used to be fairly well off, but we're not well off anymore. And it's kind of hard to find uh, anything to eat. And when I was rich, I used to throw out some good garbage. But I've got news for you now. Garbage isn't what it used to be Garbage has become a tragedy Oh, there's no discarded caviar Or a half-smoked good cigar It's hardly worth the trouble Rummaging through the rubble Garbage has become a sheer disgrace not a tasty morsel any place You'll never see no drop of vino No bon bon from Paris Garbage isn't what it used to be When garbage used to be debris Not this trashy haberdashery Not a dented bowler hat or a worn out silk cravat There's nothing you can use now Heels and soles don't have shoes now Since that jolly day in 29 Garbage has been in a sad decline Savile made now looks homemade Flies come down to your knee Garbage isn't what it used to be Got a job, got a job All you elegant looking people out there Got a job, any job Doing anything, any place, anywhere Got a job, any job I mean you in the second row in cashmere 
Got a job, got a job. Hey, you lady with all the rocks in each ear. Try and figure it out, dear friends, if you can. And you'll see that according to nature's plan, that the difference between an ordinary man and a job, oh, it's a job. Of course, you're 50 years too late. Up here, it's 1934. But 50 years from now, you might need one even more. 20 hours on the street. We're selling apples every day. But no one wants the ratchet fruit, so we're giving it away. Let it fall. Take a lull. And when they're rotten to the skin, we'll find them speaking up that bin. Garbage isn't what it used to be. It's an insult to democracy. Not a cufflink, not a stud, just a mess of muck and mud. One requires a strainer to go through a container. Garbage has become a mortal sin. Used to 